question. Hey everyone, uh, this is uh, Nevin Gussack and Herschel Miller with another episode of the uh, Patriotic Populist. Today we have an exciting show. We have our first guest uh, for today's show. We have Brian Carroll, who was the 2020 uh, presidential candidate for the American Solidarity Party, which hold, upholds the ideas of Christian democracy. And Mr. Carroll's background includes uh, majoring in history, I believe, and being a teacher both here in the United States and abroad, and has become politically active, ran in the 2016 congressional uh, campaign against, amongst other individuals, uh, uh, Devin Nunes of California who's the uh, well-known Republican congressman, and then ran again in the 2020 presidential election uh, as the American Solidarity Party presidential candidate, garnering, I think it was at least 35 to 40,000 votes. Uh, welcome, Brian, or welcome, Mr. Carroll, excuse me. Yeah, oh, you can call me Brian. Uh, my students always had to call me Mr. Carroll, but uh, peers can call me Brian. A uh, couple of corrections, one, uh, I ran against Devin Nunes in 2018, not 2016. Oh. Uh, and our final total in votes was 42,000 uh, and some uh, that we know of. Uh, but several states uh, where we know we got some write-in votes don't count those. They never report those write-in votes. And uh, so we may have finished this with as many as about 48,000, but we know of 42,000 for sure. Well, that's a hell of an accomplishment nonetheless. I mean, for me, and I, I don't want to interject here because I believe this is a time I want to really listen to what Brian has to say, but the American Solidarity Party for me come out of nowhere. You know, I think the first mention that I know of the American Solidarity Party might have been in late 2019. And to think a party that is as relatively young as the ASP to get that many votes, I believe is, is a real testament to just how genuine that your platform is. Yeah, our 2016 candidate got, uh, again, 6,000 votes that we know of, plus some others that probably didn't get reported. But uh, we feel pretty good in a, in a year when uh, the epidemic uh, kept uh, campaigning down. Uh, we, you know, went from 6,000 to 42,000 uh, with a low budget campaign. Uh, I wasn't traveling. I did a couple of um, uh, debates with other third-party candidates, um, and uh, we didn't we didn't spend a lot of money, um, but we got some uh, good press, uh, both in um, uh, Christianity Today, which is an evangelical publication, and uh, several of the Catholic publications. And we got uh, some uh, good coverage from uh, like the American Conservative Magazine uh, when they did their, uh, some, whatever they call it at the end with uh, like 17 of their writers each endorsed somebody. Uh, three of the 17 endorsed us. Uh, the uh, I Side With campaign, uh, which called me a, a democratic socialist, uh, gave us good coverage. 
I'm sure I'm the only democratic socialist in their mind anyway, uh, that the American conservative magazine has ever had anybody endorse. Uh, but we break the mold. You know, it's hard to peg us. It's hard to put us in, in a left-right conservative liberal uh, framework because we do. We, we slide all over the place with different, different opinions in different areas. I'll tell you, one of your policies, you know, case in point is, is that, you know, from what I understand of the ASP, and I'm no expert, so I'm great, you know, great if you can correct me on this. But the ASP is what y'all, or y'all have a slogan y'all refer to as being whole life. And, you know, being very, and I don't want to use anti-abortion as a derogatory way, but being anti-abortion, but also anti-death penalty. And I don't think I'd ever seen that before. So could you explain to us, why that is? Why, how can or why are you both anti-abortion and anti-death penalty, and why do you think them are related concepts? Well, the vocabulary we use is to either say we are whole life for the whole life, or sometimes we use the term consistent life. Uh, but we believe that uh, the the life issues uh, are not limited to just abortion. We want to see not just babies born. But we want to see the conditions within society so that people can thrive uh, from the cradle to the grave. Uh, natural death, not, not uh, assisted suicide. We want to see uh, a respect for life that trumps everything else. Now, I shouldn't use the word trump, but, you know, that, that overrides everything else. Uh, and a lot of that has been very carefully worked out. Uh, in Catholic social teaching, but I came to a lot of those positions before I ever even knew there was such a thing as Catholic social teaching. Uh, for instance, on the death penalty, uh, I got interested in it oh, 20, 30 years ago, I guess, and started reading, and I was reading Mennonite stuff um, against the death penalty, and it was making a lot of sense to me. And so actually I was... I was on a um, on the elder board of an evangelical free church when I was working through that and came up with the conclusion that the Bible does not support the death penalty. And uh, kind of when I made that public, uh, the other elders kind of looked at me kind of funny. And mm -hmm. uh, but I had, you know, it's something that I had come to that position by myself. And so when I came to the Solidarity Party and that was the position of the Solidarity Party, uh, I was already there. You know, one question about your background, you mentioned that you started to come to those holistically pro-life positions before you entered the ASP. Where did you start out when you became politically involved? Did you start out as a, a liberal progressive? Did you start out as a conservative or a Republican or were you always an independent? How did that path develop to the ASP and to your positions? Yeah, well, well, if you have to go back to the roots, uh, as a 10-year-old, I supported Nixon against Kennedy mm. and uh, painted a sign and put it on my wagon and dragged it around the block to the eternal embarrassment of my siblings that I dragged with me. Um, <laughs> and, then, and then for a while, I kind of went you know, back and forth, which whichever 
party won, I figured the more interesting primary would be in the other party. So I always joined the party that had just lost. Mm. Uh, and I did that uh, until uh, 1980. And then uh, simply on, the, on pro-life, uh, I voted for Reagan. Uh, mm. And uh, actually, I voted for Reagan twice for governor and twice for president after having promised myself that I never would vote for Reagan, you know. Mm. And, and so I stayed a Republican because I was pro-life mm -hmm. and uh, never completely sold. Uh, I was a social conservative, but I was not an economic, you know, I was not a, a Wall Street conservative. Um, and so I was never completely comfortable there, but I did it for 35 years. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, in, I think it was 2010 in California, uh, the Republicans ran Meg Whitman for governor and mm -hmm. she was pro-choice, pro-choice Republican. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, if the Republicans are going to run, uh, pro-choice pro candidates, then that gives me the freedom to go look at the Democrats. Mm -hmm. And I want voting for Jerry Brown, mm -hmm. uh, especially on his uh, education policy. As a school teacher, I felt that uh, Meg Whitman's education, uh, well, she was against teachers. And I just, I, I, that was kind of a self-interest. I think the schools were better off under, under um, Jerry Brown. But that also gave me the chance to actually kind of look at some democratic positions. As long as I was voting straight pro-life, mm -hmm. I didn't really have to look too hard at what the Democrats were talking about. And I was also very upset, again, California Governor uh, Pete Wilson in the, in the mm -hmm. 90s, uh, who was very much anti-Hispanics. His policies mm -hmm. were very xenophobic. Um, and I, uh, you know, I was teaching in a school that was 95% Hispanic, recent immigrants, either from Mexico or uh, Latin America, Central America mostly. Um, and, uh, and his policies were very, very, to me, racist. And so mm -hmm. I said, I'm going to be a part of that. Uh, and I think the Republican Party in California is today suffering from that because they gave themselves that image. And uh, I thought it was a mistake at the time. And uh, it, it has very much turned out to be so. So, you know, when, when uh, 2016 came around or 2015 came around and I looked at the Republican field and I actually had supported Huckabee earlier, mm -hmm. uh, but even Huckabee had kind of soured on me mm -hmm. and I couldn't see a single Republican that appealed to me out of the, you know, there were 20 or so in the, in the race at that point. And then when Trump came along, I thought, no, you know, his, his history was that everything he touched, he corrupted, you know, he sucked it in. It became about him. And I was afraid for the pro-life movement. Mm. I would afraid that the pro-life movement would suddenly be about Trump instead of being about pro-life. I was afraid for the Republican Party. I think I foresaw in 2015 exactly what is happening to the Republican Party right now. Mm. Um, and uh, 
And so the things that I cared about, uh, my, the, the Christian witness uh, of American church uh, was going to be corrupted. And so I said, uh, you know, I can't do that. And so um, I did, I actually uh, quit the Republican Party and uh, joined the Democratic Party long enough to vote for uh, Bernie over Hillary. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, and then I happened to be in the East Coast at the time of the Democratic Convention and uh, stood outside uh, the convention in Philadelphia and uh, had an opportunity there to see uh, Jill Stein speak. And I said, well, that's not what I'm looking for. Mm-hmm. And so uh, when that, that convention was over and I got home, I said, all right, uh, this, you know, the 2016 election is a lost cause. Nothing good is going to come out of it. And so it's time to start looking ahead to, to the next elections. And it took me about two weeks poking around on the web, looking at different third parties to find uh, the Solidarity Party. And I read their platform and it only took one one read. I said, yes, this is it. And uh, so we were organizing in California and I got in on the ground level and, and was part of the original convention that created a party in California and uh, was registered to be an elector. If, if Mike Maturin had carried California, I would have been one of California's electors in that election. Uh, it didn't happen. Um, and then, you know, started looking around and said, all right, if we're going to have a party, we've got to run somebody against uh, something. And uh, in my district, uh, it seemed like uh, Devin Nunes was a worthy opponent. And so I ran against him. That was... Um, a learning experience. I didn't have. I was still teaching full time. Mm-hmm. Had no no team. I was the only member of the party in the district that I'm aware of. Uh, so no ground game, no money, no time. Uh, but I appeared in some candidate debates, and uh, I marched in a couple parades, and uh, it was a good experience. I got uh, 1.3 percent of the vote. Uh, I beat the Libertarian. And by the time I had done that, uh, other members of the party had decided that I had done such a good job losing that, that I should lose something bigger. And they decided to go ahead and nominate me for president. <laughs> wow, that's a great story. You know, in many, in certain ways, it, your story, your testimony dovetails how Herschel and I became disillusioned with the Republicans. One of the many things that disillusioned us with Trump was the whole caravan business and the use of immigrants who we feel are politically powerless uh, as weapons to gain electoral votes. And while we're not, Herschel and I are not open borders advocates, we're also not our brand of nationalism, we are not xenophobic. Our issue uh, parallels actually the ASP's platform on immigration and which targets actually the employer abuse of immigrants Mm -hmm. at the expense of Americans. See, our issues were one of the things we disagree with modern conservatism about is they always like to pick on politically and economically powerless individuals. And I'm just going to say it flat out. It rubs both of us the wrong way. Yeah. But one of the things you mentioned, you disagreed or you 
um, didn't identify with Wall Street conservatism, particularly during the Reagan era. And that kind of perked my ears. Um, what aspects of Wall Street conservatism do you disagree with? Their value system, their actions. What did you see during the times when you were the Reagan supporter that turned you off from that uh, brand of conservatism, you know, economically? Yeah, no, I, I support uh, safety nets. You know, the, the, there was always within uh, Republican uh, economic conservatives uh, this idea that, uh, you know, get rid of Social Security um, and get rid of uh, Medicare, get rid of, you know, all those kinds of things that, that are really helpful to people. And uh, so I could never support that. Uh, for instance, I said I supported uh, Huckabee in, what did that must have been 2008. And uh, I would have supported him in 2012 uh, if he had run. Um, but he was all, you know, he was big on this flat tax thing. Mm -hmm. And to me, the flat tax is kind of a scam. And so I supported him uh, for for social conservative things, but I kind of thought that his his economic program was 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 just a joke. I mean, it was just he was using it to get uh, supporters, whether it was the Koch brothers or I don't know who else was financing him. But he was just a mouthpiece for for somebody that was paying for it. I I I could not see anybody realistically say that that was going to work. Uh, and it would definitely be to the benefit of the super wealthy rather than the man in the street. And, and you know, if I could cut in for just a second, that's one of the things I would love to, to tell the listeners of this is a I'm lot sorry. of. Oh, no, it's yeah, I'm not hearing your, your comment. Can you hear me now? Yes. OK. One of the things that I try to talk to my conservative friends about, especially the, the flat tax comes up often, is they say, well, it's, it's the most fair and, and balanced system because, you know, everybody pays the same no matter if you're poor or rich or whatever. But one of the things that I like to tell people about the flat tax is, is that proportional wealth, it, 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 it's more nuanced than just, you know, everybody, you know, if a man makes uh, $100, he pays 15 or if a man makes a million dollars, he pays 150000 A huge part of that argument leaves out the fact that at a certain point, disposable income starts to stack up on people. You know, $15 out of a $100 paycheck hurts me significantly more than $150,000 out of a million dollar paycheck. It's another one of them ideas that it sounds great in concept, but once you start really diving into it, it's just another scam to try to get more money to the top of the, the, the food chain. Sorry for that. Yeah, you know, at a certain point, you have to say, what does that extra money buy for the person who's earned it? And, of course, to a certain extent, uh, it's a lot of little people who are working real hard to earn it for them. Uh, the, the decisions that the guy at the top is making are nowhere near worth what they're being paid, I don't think. Um, but I read a study. They had, uh, they had done a study among the super wealthy. You know, what, what was it that motivated them? 
to, to pursue more. Uh, and it was competition. It was just for the rights, the bragging rights to say, well, you know, I've just moved up from number seventh richest man in the world to number sixth richest man in the world. Uh, and in the process, you know, those guys can lose uh, $2 billion in a day in the fluctuation of the stock market. And to me, you know, I see too many people struggling uh, to, to uh, pay the bills every month. And those people are working hard. Some of, you know, some of the people right now that, uh, you know, they're working three jobs because no one job will give them enough hours to qualify for, for health care. Um, and so they've got, you know, three different jobs that are 28 hours each, uh, which means they're, you know, they're, they're, they're working 80 hours a week or more. Uh, no health care that goes on to the taxpayer. Uh, there's, you know, they they don't have time to to relax and be a parent to their kids. Uh, you can't tell me that a person who's working that many hours a week doesn't deserve to have the kinds of benefits that our society says should come with a with a job. You know, people. The, 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 the wealthy people who are complaining against these freeloaders, you know, these lazy freeloaders who are uh, getting everything off society for free. No, that's a lie. Nobody who's working 80 hours a week uh, deserves to be slandered that way. And yet that is what is so often the rhetoric that comes from those who want to support a free market. Uh, and, and then they, you know, we've seen over the last you know, 30, 40 years, uh, you know, corporate raiders who buy a company and bleed it dry, uh, get themselves a, a large hunk of money out of it and put a bunch of other people out of work. And yet our society rewards them. Those are the people that our society, the free market, supposedly, is rewarding. And to me, that's criminal. That, that should not be happening. We cannot allow that to happen. No, and we couldn't, we couldn't agree with you more. That is something that, we, that Herschel and I constantly inveigh against uh, on this particular show. Um, that's another reason why Herschel and I abandoned conservatism. And for me, uh, one of my main issues is national security. And those so same free market advocates are historically, even during the Cold War, uh, you may even remember this, the Koch brothers, uh, the citizens for a sound economy, um, you know, and even after the supposed end of the Cold War, uh, throughout the 90s and 2000s, you had groups like the uh, Cato Institute, Heritage Foundation, they all, and the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, they all fell all over themselves, supposed anti-socialists, and yet they supported uh, expanded trade relations with communist China, with Putin's Russia, <clears throat> and whatnot. These same free market individuals, all, the all in the name of profit and globalism and expanding their business operations, uh, they ended up throughout 
the 20th and 21st history, and I've written extensively about this, they've ex basically given economic and military sustenance and political legitimacy to some of the most ruthless totalitarian adversaries of the United States. Now, I'd like you to comment on that. I know on national security, the ASP takes more of a position that we have to scale back to some degree our involvements throughout the world without sacrificing the need for a strong military. And I know the ASP platform is taking a critical look at our uh, trade agreements. Uh, from a variety of points of view. What is your take on you know, what I had said um, regarding how the free market right has emboldened the very enemies of the free market and free government worldwide? What is your, What are your thoughts on that? Well, first of all, uh, the, the trade treatment, trade agreements that we made, uh, I'm thinking especially like the, the Trans-Pacific, was it TT? TPP, Trans-Pacific Partnership. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, that was uh, designed uh, to kind of uh, encircle China, keep China from uh, expanding at the expense of its neighbors, which I think was a worthy goal. But it was also... Uh, you know, basically written by the corporations, and uh, and it allowed them uh, to do you know kind of freehand in in polluting some things and uh, doing other things that that violate workers' rights. And um, we do need to corral China. We need to you know do a better job of standing up to China especially diplomatically. Oh. But that doesn't mean that we just turn everything over. You know, we, we join these treaties and the right wing says, well, you know, we can't, we can't yield our sovereignty uh, in these treaties, uh, but we turn the sovereignty over to the corporations. You know, whether we yield our sovereignty to an international organization or we yield it to corporate powers, that's still yielding our national sovereignty. And so uh, I, I do want to see uh, international cooperation. Uh, you know, we, we need to be working on uh, protecting ourselves from climate change uh, or climate weirding. Um, we need to do a lot of things that have to be done at the level of international organizations. Um, but we can't just turn that over to the corporations to write stuff that, that benefits them. Uh, we have to have things that benefit, um, well, everything has ripple effects. Mm -hmm. For example, uh, our our treaties with uh, with Mexico allow us to uh, sell a lot of Midwestern corn uh, in Mexico, which does help our corn farmers. No question about that. Uh, 
but it destroys the economy of the subsistence corn farmers mm-hmm. in Mexico. That's right. And uh, and then they're at our borders, uh, trying to come across the border and find work up here. Mm-hmm. And uh, that, of course, panics the the right wing. Uh, and uh, and yet their policies have promoted that. I mean, they have pushed people into doing that. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, you know, we have a lot of people coming up from El Salvador and, uh, and Guatemala. Well, uh, rising sea levels are pushing the indigenous people who live in the mangrove, uh, mangrove uh, fishing villages as the sea level rises, uh, their economy is wiped out, and uh, and they have to find someplace else to go, mm-hmm. and so you know and that spawns all the crime and the and gang stuff down there. Uh, added also uh, to the to our addiction to to drugs from passing through there. Those people have to go someplace, and mm-hmm. so that's why they're at our border, and mm-hmm. and the time to stop them from coming to our border is not after they're already moving but it's back when their original economies are getting wiped out uh you know we need to do things to protect them where they are so that they're more willing to stay where they are where they, you know, people want to stay where they are that's that's basic you know you only leave if you're desperate and so we need to do something to stop the desperation uh, down there uh, and reverse some of the damage we've already done. You know, fancy hotel, no doubt financed by um, Wall Street, goes down there and buys up a whole bunch of beachfront property and throws up a big fancy hotel for tourists. Mm-hmm. But it displaces all the people that were living in the villages on those beaches. Mm-hmm. So we, we, we need to be looking at things from a bigger picture. We need people to to nuance our policies, and uh, and look ahead a little bit and say, you know what? If you wipe out all these people's homes, they're going to move someplace, and that's going to cause problems. You know, so yeah, that kind of stuff. Yeah, no, I think you hit the nail. So many nails on so many heads here, but I think the biggest nail you hit, which is something that is hopefully the audience knows, is addressed in the ASP platform, is the issue of aggregated political power by private sector oligarchs, and to at least myself, and I would uh, include Herschel in this, to me that is the existential national security threat and domestic security threat and even planetary threat uh, to our survival as a nation. Because as Thomas Jefferson said in a letter, I'm paraphrasing him, merchants have no country. Because you look at the Trans-Pacific Partnership as an example, that agreement, even by Hillary Clinton's own admission, would have enriched communist Vietnam. And the Obama administration talked with a forked tongue on TPP when they were saying that it was done. And a lot of their Tea Party Republican supporters that supported TPP, like Ted Cruz, they all said, oh, this is going to stand up to China and everything. But yet, 
Obama administration's State Department officials, including John Kerry on Mirrored TV in Russia, said that we would allow China and Russia into the TPP. So, you know, there's a, you, you know, throughout America's, and you know this as a history academic, as history for, for history teacher yourself and a historian, throughout the Cold War and even today, America has always had a very, um, schizophrenic policy when it came to its adversaries during World War II with the Axis powers and now with us. It's like we fight them, we oppose them, we write resolutions against them, but yet we trade with them or we give a wink and a nod for American corporations to ship technology and whatnot. So I think one of the things and one of the purposes of our show is for Herschel and I is to bring like-minded individuals together. I guess our one of our grand dreams is to bring populist and nationalist and well-meaning independent individuals to the table to create maybe down the line a counter coalition to push against this neoliberal market fundamentalist soulless garbage for the lack of a better word uh, to push it slowly out of the mainstream. So, you know, I feel like we're really connecting on a lot of different ideas of the sources of our country's problem. But uh, I wanted to end my little, uh, you know, response to um, your answer there. I think your answers were great. We're totally spot on on that. And I wanted to Cede the microphone, so to speak, to Herschel. Herschel, did you have any follow-up questions? So this is one that anytime you're talking to somebody that's in a position of prominence in the third party, I think it's an important question to ask is, although I'm pretty sure all three of us at the, you know, in this interview, we would love for third parties to be a much easier and viable strategy to achieve political success, the the harsh reality of the situation is is that third parties face an uphill battle from start to finish. So, what my question is would be, I guess, is so a man like you, Brian, that that you you've stated your ideological conviction fairly well, and you wear them well. You know, why not try to reform one of the bigger parties from the inside? And I know that I'll, uh, that that that's easier said than done, but you know, it seems like starting a third party. Oh, no, you didn't start it, but being part of a third party is just as difficult as that would be, if not more. Well, third parties uh, can win a couple ways, uh, even when they're not likely to actually win an election. When a third party demonstrates uh, some strength, one of the other parties will steal its ideas. And uh, if, if either one of the parties wants to steal our ideas, they're welcome to them. Um, one of the things that I saw coming uh, when I joined this party was that the other two parties are at a point of uh, realignment. In other words, you're, you've already seen the Republican Party in the last couple months uh, splitting. Uh, they're losing a lot of people are just re registering, re-registering outside the party 
and we don't know where all of them are going. Some of them may still be independents, and not all of them would even be comfortable in the American Solidarity Party. But uh, you know, I, uh, several thousands, the statistics I saw, uh, have left the Republican Party in, in California since January, and I think I saw similar things in Florida and some other states. Um, and so one of my goals in, in running for president last year was to get our party to a point where we would be a place for people to land. As people are jumping ship from the other parties, uh, we would at least be well enough known that people would f be able to find us. And, uh, and again, we ran a very low budget campaign, uh, but we've had a lot of people join the party. Uh, we had a whole bunch join us in November who said, you know, we had never heard of your party till we saw you in the results of the voting. Uh, you know, we were we were on the ballot in eight states. And so in states like uh, Wisconsin and Illinois and uh, um, Louisiana, Mississippi, uh, the, the first time people saw us as a party was when they looked at their sample ballots. And uh, a lot of people took their sample ballots and went running to, you know, Wikipedia or I side with or some of the other things and looked us up. And uh, and that's how they found us or they didn't find us until uh, the election results. And they said, oh, who are those people? And so we are. We're at a point where now people who are leaving the other parties uh, can find us. And uh, so we will grow. And as we grow. The other two parties are going to be looking and saying, oh, what can we do to draw those people back? Uh, you know, right now in the Democratic Party, uh, you've got uh, 21 million pro-life Democrats. And obviously the Biden administration is not listening to any of their desires. And so those people are going to be looking for a new home. And uh, you've got uh, Republicans uh, that are trying to figure out what to do. Uh, you've got, for example, just this week, there were a whole bunch of um, evangelicals. Uh, they, they formed a group called Evangelicals for Biden, and they are bitterly disappointed. And mm -hmm. I think they should have foreseen the fact that Biden was not going to do anything to help them. Uh, but they went out on a limb and endorsed Biden, and now they're very embarrassed by that. All right, they're going to be looking for a new home. Um, and so there's a lot of people out there that are ripe for our party. And I think we're going to grow a lot. But the other thing that's happening, a lot of states are looking at uh, ranked choice voting. Mm -hmm. uh, they're looking at other kinds of voting uh, reforms that will help us. Uh, we have um, people starting to run in some local races. Uh, right now there's a special election in uh, Wisconsin for a state level. Uh, John, uh, ben Smith, Ben. All right, the name is his name is Ben. 
Um, but he's running up there for a state senate or state assembly in a special election. Uh, and that's going on you know, across the country. We have several that's going on. So we're, we're growing and we're building at the local level. And those are the things that a party needs to do. And if the other parties start to feel threatened by what we're doing, they'll steal our ideas. And that's mm. that's We win. Well, that's a good point. You know, and I have to say the idea of a, a Christian distributist Republican Party, you know, that's a that's a pretty appealing idea. Mm. <laughs> it made me join, rejoin the Republican Party. I broke with them and similar to Mr. Carroll, I joined the Democratic Party just so I could vote for Bernie in the primary. So, I mean, you know, to be honest with you, I did that in 2020 and gave him money. So, but, you know, I had a question on top of the third party, and I think that's a very good idea. That's a good roadmap for the potential influx of new ASP members from the pro-life Democrats, the anti-abortion Democrats that Biden has disappointed. What do you say? I'm sure you get this all the time. Because I've told people, mm, thinking of voting, running, voting in third for a third party in this election, and people say, "Oh, that's just a wasted vote," and you know, you're just sealing Trump's victory or Biden's victory. How could you do that? What is your response to such individuals? Because I get that all the time. It really is kind of nauseating. If you vote for what you don't want and win. Have you really won? You know, that, that's what the, the, the evangelicals for Biden have just learned. You know, they voted for uh, Biden thinking that they would be better off. And they realized, you know, Biden's not going to give them anything. And so they voted for what they didn't want, thinking it was the lesser of two evils. Mm -hmm. And they've discovered that it's not what they really wanted. They, they have not won, even though the guy they voted for won the election. They have not won on the issues that were important to them. Exactly. Exactly. Because the lesser of two evils, you're still getting evil. You're still getting bad policies, regardless. And if more people, I always would say, if more people actually dropped saying oh, you're going to vote in Trump or vote in Biden if you vote for the lesser of two evils or whatever and vote third party. Well, if it, everybody came together and said, oh, I really identify with that third party, then you would actually have policies that you would want that most American people would like to see for their, for their families and countrymen and their children. We would especially well, see that if we get ranked choice voting. Yeah. Yes, very true, which is being, exp I believe it's in some states, correct me if I'm wrong, I think it's in Maine, uh, and I know it's been on the ballot on a few other states, if, uh, if I recollect State correctly. Statewide in Maine, and there's a bunch of different cities that use it within just the city elections, mm -hmm. and uh, there are a bunch of states that are working right now on um, uh, ballot propositions to bring it in. Uh, professional politicians are not very fond of it, uh, no. but but uh, coalitions of voters are working to get it onto state ballots as, as a proposition. Well, you know, speaking of coalitions, I think that's the one key strategy for everybody going forward. Because 
It's been my observation as I've looked around the political landscape of America over the last couple of years, and I don't have anything against the ASP or any other third party, but it's one of the things that kind of comes to mind is, is that there seems to be, at least in, in, in flashes, certain strength behind populist movements in the United States. I mean, yes, you have various degrees of populist, but the general consensus of, you know, the, the middle class and the working class are struggling right now and we need assistance. So this is something I'm wondering. So they, how would I say this? Do you think there is a future for the ASP to build co or coalitions with other third parties to try to help achieve electoral success? Or do you think the party as a whole is going to try to continue on its own path? Well, we have active programs going on right now uh, to find commonality with some of the other third parties. Uh, for instance, all the third parties would benefit from ranked choice voting. And so uh, we are with many of those parties uh, supporting the statewide efforts or wherever it's going on to, to try and, and get ranked choice voting, we're working with them. And we do have uh, uh, relationships with them. Um, we have uh, our, our national committee um, and members of our leadership that are not even officially they're just, you know, they're, they're leaders on the basis of what they're doing uh, with even without an elected position. Uh, but they're constantly in contact with some of the other parties, uh, parties where we don't agree with them on anything else except, you know, some procedural things like ranked choice voting. And we're able to work with them on that. Um, or we are, we have some common interests in, um, uh, you know, how many signatures does it take to get on the ballot? You know, uh, some of the states uh, are so easy to get on the ballot. Uh, and, you know, in Louisiana, for example, to get on the ballot, we had to uh, submit a, um, a slate of electoral candidates one from each uh, congressional district uh, and some paperwork. Um, but as a result of that, of course, uh, there were lots of candidates on the ballot. Uh, Colorado was another one. It was really easy to get on the ballot in, in Colorado, but there were you know 30 candidates. And so there's trade-offs, and you want to come up with some kind of reasonable uh, threshold that you have to get across to, to get onto the ballot. Um, but all the third parties are interested in the results of that. Uh, you know, North and South Carolina were impossible for anybody to get on the ballot. It was, it was ridiculous. Um, and so in individual states, we are, we're working with other parties where we have a common interest and we will continue to do that. Uh, if we are elected, uh, where we have other policy interests, you know, we have as a as a 
pro-life for the whole life party, uh, we share uh, climate concerns uh, with uh, the Green Party. Uh, you know, we share uh, some social conservative interests with the Prohibition Party. Uh, you know, so we, we do. As we pick and choose our policies that we want to talk about, we have a shifting group of potential allies, and we want to reach out and work on them. You know, that's what we need in this country more. When, when there were 10 Republicans that went to Biden and, and basically said, we'd like to work with you, and he thumbed his nose at him and said, we don't need you. We're just going to do it without you. Well, that's not good for democracy. Uh, if, if the two parties can't work together even at the margins, uh, then every time we have an election, we're going to have a zigzag, you know, course, you know, it's kind of like the, the Mexico City policy. Uh, every time a Republican president comes in, very first day, he reinstitutes the, the uh, abortion, you know, no, no American money for foreign abortion organizations, the Mexico City policy. And whenever a Democrat's elected, first day in, they rescind the Mexico City policy. Um, and as a result, the United States zigs and zags. Uh, foreign countries uh, don't know what they can depend on. You know, when Trump came in and pulled us out of the Paris uh, Accords, uh, climate accords, and of course, Biden comes in the very first day and puts us back in the accords. Foreign governments want to be able to say they know what the United States is going to do. Uh, and so there has to be some consistency. And that only comes when our policies are generated where, there, where there's overlap between the two parties in, in their beliefs and, and the, the party discipline in both parties is so tight that uh, you get somebody like a, uh, a uh, well, like a Tulsi Gabbard who had lots of policies uh, that she shared with us and they were they were no longer orthodox democratic policies and she got you know she got pushed out of the party mm -hmm. or, or uh, congressman lipinski dan lipinski in illinois pro-life and and the the democrats targeted him they put an enormous amount of money into uh primarying a sitting democratic congressman uh and we can't have that kind of moving to the extremes and still have any kind of policies made from the center. Mm. And in your, as a historian yourself, and briefly, or you could explain at length, why do you think uh, American politics has been characterized by such hyper-partisanship? Where do you, what factors or what historical events do you trace, uh, you know, the United States, American politics devolving to that hyper-partisanship? I know it's kind of a long question, but, you know, just some observations. Well, just as an observation, uh, I was in South America uh, for a total of nine years, uh, late 80s, early 90s. 
Uh, I was there for five, came home for four, and went back for another, uh, came back for two and went back for another four down there. Um, but when I came back, I noticed that there was a change. So I came back in 95. And uh, during that period, uh, for example, uh, Rush Limbaugh had become very popular. And uh, I had a bunch of friends at church who were, you know, always talking about Rush and how great he was. And I, so I tuned in and he had kind of a funny shtick. I enjoyed him for about a week. And then I said, mm, this is this kind of scoffing and, uh, and it's, it's funny, but it's not going to help us as a country. Uh, it's going to pull us apart. And, uh, and I think it did. I stopped listening to it, but there was more and more of that kind of thing. And then uh, in the, about that same time, uh, Newt Gingrich uh, took over the, the Republican Party in Congress. And, and he basically you know, said, well, we're not going to work with those guys at all. Or where they couldn't, they could not even support a good idea if the other side was going to get credit for that idea. Uh, and you get reports from Congress, uh, West Virginia Congressman uh, Thomas Massey uh, has a great YouTube series where he talks about, you know, you, you get these people who have spent an enormous amount of energy and money to be elected to Congress because they have these ideas that they want to help the country with. And they get up there and uh, the, the party machinery simply tells them how they're going to vote. They don't have the freedom to vote anymore. You know, we spend billions and billions and billions of dollars electing people to go up there and think for us. And they arrive and they're told, don't think, just do what you're told. You know, so there's all kinds of reasons. And, you know, we're self-sorting. Most Americans live in districts where they don't even know anybody uh, from the other party. Uh, you know, in, in Los Angeles, you would have a hard time. Uh, Democrats in Los Angeles have a hard time finding a Republican in their social circle. Mm -hmm. I'm sure the same thing happens in, in red states. I happen to be in a red county in a blue state. Um, and But, you know, I see that around me. I, I have friends that I'm sure um, I am either the only non-Democrat on their Facebook friends list or the only non-Republican <laughs> on their Facebook friends list. Uh, and when we sort ourselves out like that and we stop seeing, uh, you know, Democrats stop seeing Republicans as fellow Americans and Republicans stop seeing Democrats as fellow Americans, they're not fellow Americans anymore. They're the enemy. And we can't have that. If we're going to be a country, we can't have that. I believe that. You know, and I'll say that from my personal experience and one of the most heavily Republican areas in the most heavily Republican state in the country, you know, they don't see Californians as people or New Yorkers as people anymore. They're just their enemies. And like you said, it's, it's, it's a horrible tragedy because look, I'm not happy with, with American politics, you know, and this whole show is dedicated to 
all of the reasons that me and Nevin are unhappy with American politics. But, you know, these people here lately that I've, you know, listened to, I have no idea how this country will survive for another 10 years, much less, you know, going into the next century. And it it scares me to death because, you know, I'm a father of, of two small children. I have a wife, I have a home, and I have the life that a lot of people wish they could have. But I'm, I worry myself to death some days just thinking about the possibility that this country could just tear itself in half because people are trying to get rich off of, of controversy. And I, I have a policy of not of not talking ill of, of the dead, so I'm going to leave Rush out of this. But when I look around YouTube, you know, you did various YouTube politics. Nearly all of it is is concerned with with who can write the 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 most controversial story or who can take the hardest position. And it's one of the reasons that I appreciate the ASP so much is because from my time of following you on your social media, or the ASP and you you seem to be very opposed to inflammatory rhetoric. And I have to commend you for that. I, I really do. Mm -hmm. So let me ask you this, because we're running pretty low on time now, and I don't want to have to keep you much longer. What is the future for Brian Carroll and ASP? Well, personally, uh, I'm, I'm 71 now. Uh, I have told the party I will not be uh, the candidate in 2024. Uh, I don't think it's good for any party to be built around one personality. Um, you know, the parties that, that for instance, uh, Kanye West, the birthday party. Well, if you don't have Kanye West, you don't have a party. You know, I don't want to have a have this the American Solidarity Party be uh, based on me. It's based on the strongest platform in the United States. And so I've told the party that I will not be the candidate next time. Um, you know, I am open to if things lift up a little bit and we have some travel, I, I, could, I would enjoy in 2024, if my health permits it, traveling the country and and uh, helping to elect somebody else. Um, but I want the party to uh, go through the process of, of developing new candidates and finding somebody new for next time. So personally, um, that's, that's where we're at. As far as the party goes, I'm very excited about uh, local candidates that are running right now in uh, several states, uh, but it's all local stuff. It's not even statewide offices. It's uh, local boards of one kind or another or state legislature. Um, so I'm excited to see that. And I think that's the logical next step that we have to have to work through. We're going to add more members. Uh, we're going to develop our state committees. Uh, we have some really strong committees in several states that really developed during this election. And uh, so now that they are organized, we're working hard to make sure that the interest doesn't drop off between elections. Um, but, you know, we've got a great national committee making a lot of good decisions. Uh, I'm not on that committee, 
um, but I'm following kind of what they're doing and uh, I approve of the things they're doing, the direction they're taking. They're building the more nuts and bolts kinds of things that a party has to have. You know, we, we did this last election. You know, I'm not actually sure what the party end spent. Um, they did hire some petition gatherers and things like that, and I don't even know what they spent on it, but I'm, I'm fairly certain uh, that between uh, donations to my campaign and what the party spent, uh, we probably spent well below 60000 or $70,000 max. Uh, and, you know, we got 42,000 votes. Um, when you look at guys like uh, Biden and, and Trump, you know, they were spending 30, 40 bucks a piece for every vote they got. And we were spending, you know, maybe a buck fifty at, at max if you total up all the different spending. But we need to up our game and come up with more donors. Uh, we need to uh, train. We have, as of the end of my campaign, we did not have a single paid staff member in the party, anywhere in the campaign. Everybody will volunteer. Well, we need to, you know, go to the point where we can actually hire some people full time uh, to do party things. Uh, you know, so those are all the kinds of things that we're growing uh, to have ready for the next uh, next elections. Yeah. Well, Brian, I think I'll speak for Nevin here when I say it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on. And to anybody that has listened to this, I hope that, you know, we present some good content here for you. Make sure to like, share, and subscribe, and comment your thought down below. Uh, Nevin, do you got any uh, words in closing? No, I think, Herschel, you summarized my views uh, perfectly. I think, uh, Brian, uh, this was an excellent interview. I definitely enjoyed hearing all of your insights, uh, perhaps in the future, if uh, you're inclined, we'd love to have you on again on our program. Uh, and uh, it's definitely been a very fun and very informative interview. I appreciate it very much. I'm very flattered and honored to have you. Well, it's been my pleasure. My, my project right now, one of my projects right now is finishing up a novel I've been working on for 50 years. So when I finish that, I'll I'll get back to you, and uh, you can have me on, and I'll plug my book. <laughs> <laughs> I just Thank finished you. my book project, and it's the last book I'm writing. It's a very daunting task, to say the least. Thank you. I I actually showed my wife the first couple pages of this book on our first date 50 years ago, <laughs> and uh, and I've been working on it off and on all this time. Uh, I did get a, a use it as my thesis for a, a master of fine arts and creative writing. Uh, mm -hmm. But even that was 12 years ago and there's still several chapters to finish the book. So that's my big project now. <laughs> nice, nice. I love it. I love it. Well, maybe we'll have you back on. You can talk about your book if you want. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, I've enjoyed it. Likewise. Thank you so much and enjoy the rest of your weekend. You too. Stay out. Oh, let's see. Oklahoma's getting rain. Yeah, we're getting rain. All right. Well, go out and enjoy a walk in the rain.
I'll make sure to do that, Mr. Carroll. And I'm going to have fun in the sun, as they All say. All right. <laughs> Very good. Nice meeting you. Nice meeting you, too. Take care now. Okay.